Uh, if you brought your Bibles, you can open them up to Daniel chapter 2. Uh, we're in a, a Daniel series that's going to carry us throughout the summer. And Daniel is all about the activity of God. So uh, Daniel chapter 2, if you're reading along, we have reading guides. We want you to follow along. But I'm going to summarize a lot of Daniel 2, and then we're going to jump in and pick up a couple of scriptures. Uh, Daniel chapter 2 is all about the evil king Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, but it's not just any dream. It's a nightmare, but it's not just a nightmare. It's a night terror. You guys know what night terrors are? This is a real thing. Like there's like a, like a nightmare is like a level five and night terror is like level 10, fall out of your bed, go running, screaming naked through your house. That's night terror. I added that part. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody's lost now already. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar has a night terror. And for him, it's an omen, right? Like for us, I think in our world, like we have a dream, we have a dream. Like, oh, that was a weird dream. What did I eat last night? You know, like, no, but, but in the ancient world, man, like dreams meant something. Like, uh, like I know sometimes like in our world, we have to convince people that there's a super, supernatural world out there, that there's a world beyond our sight. But, but the ancient world, they already knew that. They already accepted that. They, they knew that, that there were powers and authorities at work in the world. And when Nebuchadnezzar has this night terror that, that, that really just shakes him to the core, he knew that it was significant. He knew it was important. And he knew it had to do with the destiny of his empire. So he does what any uh, uh, great king of this time period would do. He calls in all of his magicians and enchanters and, and sorcerers and astrologers and fortune tellers. You see, there have always been people since the dawn of time who have claimed some special secret knowledge of the future. And so Nebuchadnezzar has a stream, and he calls in his astrologers, his, he calls in his magicians, his magi, brings them all in, and they walk in carrying stacks and stacks of books. They're interpretation books. That's how, they, that's how they would do it. Like, you tell them your dream, and then they would look it up. Chapter 7, okay, night terror, running naked. Okay, I know exactly, like, we're going to tell this, we're going to give you the interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar does something different. In chapter 2, if you look carefully, Nebuchadnezzar says, I've had this horrible dream. I need you to interpret it for me. And all of these magicians and chanters, they gather around. They go, okay, awesome. We got our books. Tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. And he says, no, you tell me what I dreamed. And they're thinking, look, look, okay, maybe you're new at this. This is not how this works. You have to tell us, and then we look it up, and then we tell you. And like in scripture, this is like there's like 10 verses of this back and forth. They said, No, 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 you tell us. And he says, Mm mm, not playing that game. You have to tell me what I dreamed, and you have to tell me what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar, a pretty short tempered guy, he goes on to tell them that if you don't tell me what I dreamed, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will turn to rubble. All right, so pretty serious about this dream, right? Look what it says in verse 10. I think verse 10 and 11. 
the astrologers replied to the king, hey, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. The king's demand is, what's the word? No one except the gods, little G, can tell you your dream. And they don't live here among the people. I love this. Do you see them squirming? The magicians, the enchanters, they're like, oh man, we are in trouble now, right? Here they are, like trying to, they twist and squirm, they try to buy time. But ultimately, like, like all the false prophets before them, they can't perceive or hear the word of God. I love what it says in Jeremiah 23, 18 about, about some of these guys. It says, have any of these prophets been in the Lord's presence to hear what he's really saying? Have even one of them cared enough to listen? And so the king says, look, if you can't do this, your life is forfeit going to be torn from limb to limb. Your houses are going to be turned to rubble. And the king issues a lethal decree. Off with their heads, right? And so in the very next verse, there's this commander of the king's guard, a guy named Arioch. And Arioch is sent out. He's got the, you know, he's got the big axe thing. Go and carry out this order and kill all of these wise men who can't do this. And that's when they show up at Daniel's door. Remember from chapter one, Daniel's been given wisdom and understanding. He's a good looking guy. He's been elevated in the king's court. And now, with no clue about what's going on, the executioner shows up at his door. Daniel gets a lay of the land. What's the situation? What's going on? What's happening? Daniel uses wisdom and is able to buy a little bit more time. He wants to try to discern what's up. He invites his three friends together, Shadrach, Meshach, and you know the other guy, right? I know what you're thinking, a bad Negro. That's right, I know. He invites his friends and he says, guys, we've got to pray about this. Uh, I don't know about you, but maybe I would leave town, you know, like get out of there. But he says, let's pray. And then in verse 19 of chapter 2 in Daniel, this is, it's pretty incredible what it says. It says, that night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And Daniel praised the God of heaven. We're going to get to a psalm of praise here in a few minutes. But what's important to see is like the, the secret that couldn't be gained through conventional wisdom, but is only the result of divine revelation. It's not just any wisdom that reveals the secret, but it is the wisdom of God. And what you see all through Daniel interwoven is the activity of God. And, and in this small scene, you see the curtain is pulled back to reveal, hey, who planted this dream in Nebuchadnezzar's head? The same one who can interpret it, God. So as you move forward in the story, Daniel calls Arioch again and he says, hey, I've got it. I've got it. I know the dream. I'm, I'm ready to share it with the king and in verse 27, uh, he says this. I think I have it on the screen. He says, uh, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. And this is really important because King Nebuchadnezzar is shocked. 
Like he expected that his astrologers and fortune tellers and magicians and enchanters, he expected that this whole tribe of people who claim supernatural revelation would be able to do it. He never expected Daniel from Judah to be able to tell the king his answer. And Daniel goes on and tells him, he says, it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. Daniel wants to make it clear that it's God who has done this thing. And so don't be confused. And the reason Daniel's received this revelation was so that King Nebuchadnezzar could receive it as well. And so Daniel proceeds in the next few verses to tell the king the dream. Uh, the dream is of a statue. I, I, man, the internet really let me down on a picture of this, but this is as close as I could get. The dream is of this gigantic statue of a, of a human figure. Uh, and, and he says it's a terrifying sight to see. This, uh, this great statue of a man represents all of the kingdoms of men. The head is of gold. The chest and arms of silver. The belly is of bronze. The legs are of iron. And the feet is of iron baked with clay. This will become the fatal weak link. Uh, some of you remember a story of Jesus about building a house on sand. It's the same kind of idea. And what you see in this picture, in this great statue, is uh, just the history of the world. Right? Right? the history of all mankind, of, of their accomplishments. And, and uh, uh, it made me think of um, expiration dates. Uh, do any of you pay, uh, pay attention to expiration dates on food? Some of you are like, they're expiration suggestions, right? Like, I feel like I look at expiration dates different when I was in college than I do now. Like, college things were a little bit looser. Um. What, what is an expired food that in your mind is still okay to eat? What do you think? What, what's something that's expired that's still, still good for a while? Chocolate chips? You got to say it louder. I can't hear it. Say it again. Cereal? Yeah, you're good. You're good. Somebody else, what's an expired food that you're, you're still good to eat? Ketchup. Yeah, there's nothing natural about that stuff at all. Like, you're good. Um, Twinkies. Twinkies. <laughs> I'm going to bring, next time, I'm going to just bring a bunch of expired food up here. We'll just see who would eat it, you know, like. Um, true story, I, I saw a friend of mine, he posted on Facebook this week. He was like, you know, give me the parenting award because he's been giving his kids milk that's been expired for a week. Uh, so I was like. If, yeah, that's weird. Um, what about foods that, like, I know Twinkies never go bad. Like, did you know that in the ancient tombs, like, even in Egyptian tombs, they found honey? And honey is apparently one of these things that, like, never goes bad. And, but, like, who is the first one to try it? Like, you try it. No, I'll try it. No, like, um, and uh, I saw this story, too, just randomly. Like, uh, they found some ancient yeast in a tomb uh, in, the, in the Near East, they found some yeast, and scientists used it to brew beer. And then they all drank it, which some of you are like, oh, well, yeah, sure, if it's beer, I'll try it. You know, like, you're already, 
Suddenly, like, your standards dropped there, there didn't they? Um, what in our world has expiration dates? I think when you look at this statue, you know, with all of these, the statue of man and all of his accomplishments, it's meant to raise a question in us. And the question is, what really lasts? What really lasts? And that question hints at an even bigger question. And the even bigger question is, what's really important? Right, it raises the question of permanence. What really lasts? I was thinking about history. There's, we've had amazing nations and kingdoms and peoples throughout our history. Uh, uh, there was the Egyptian kingdom and the, the Mayan kingdom, the Roman kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom. Like, How many of these kingdoms are still around today? You know, even when I think about the United States of America, like we're a relatively young country, right? Like, I mean, just 240 something years, something like that. Like the Babylonian kingdom, just for reference, was 300 years. The Egyptian kingdom, over 500. And where are they? What really lasts? How long, maybe this is an unfair question, but how long do you think the United States of America will last? What do you think? Think it will, think it will last forever? Do we, hope, do we hope it'll last forever? Maybe. But I, I think that may be a little bit naive to hope that it lasts forever because at least as far as history goes, no kingdom has ever lasted, has it? And like the statue, it raises this question of permanence. It raises this question of what really lasts. I love the book of Ecclesiastes and I've taught on Ecclesiastes before. Some of you remember suffering through that. Um, Ecclesiastes, there's this church leader and this church leader, he claims to have, have, have experienced everything. If, if the world in this life is a buffet, he's had it all, right? Like he, he's tasted and tried every human experience, everything the world has to offer. And he comes out with this amazing conclusion about all of it. He states it in the very first line of his letter. He says, everything is meaningless. You're all excited to read Ecclesiastes now, right? Like think about the whole realm of human experience, everything this world has to offer. And he's, his conclusion is that it's all meaningless. And what he means is everything, no matter how powerful or, or how good or how bad, is ultimately temporary. And when we look at this statue in, this, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel, like, like this is the image of the statue that all of man's greatest achievements are temporary. That everything, everything on this planet has an expiration date, including you, right? But there is one thing that will last. There is one thing with staying power. 
If we go back to Daniel's interpretation of the dream, you see this powerful image of all of man's greatest achievements. And then Daniel says, out of nowhere, a hand not made by God is going to cleave a rock. And that rock is going to come and crash into the feet of the statue. And the statue is going to be obliterated. Like there's nothing left. It says the wind and dust is going to carry every piece of it away. It's going to be crushed and blown away. And the rock that knocked the statue down becomes a great mountain that covers the earth. And here's what Daniel in verse 44, here's what he says about it. His interpretation is that during the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all of these kingdoms into nothingness. And it will stand. What's that word? Daniel says, what God is doing doesn't have an expiration date. It is a picture of permanence, of enduring, of of a kingdom unaffected by time or climate. A kingdom that lasts. In the next few verses, you see that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is stunned. He's shocked. In verses 46 and 47, he says, Daniel, you nailed it. King Nebuchadnezzar throws himself down before Daniel and worshiped him and commands his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, and you have been able to reveal the secret. All right, so seems maybe like Nebuchadnezzar has got it. Like Daniel told him, hey, this is what this means. The head of gold is actually you, all these kingdoms are nothing before God's kingdom. You think Nebuchadnezzar, oh, he's, he's got it. But maybe not because in chapter 3, the very first verse, Nebuchadnezzar builds a giant statue of gold and makes everybody worship it. Like, so, okay, so maybe he's not, like, he's not getting it. Look what Daniel says. Or, or look what Nebuchadnezzar says. Truly, your God is the greatest of gods. The Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal the secret. And there's incredible irony in this, right? Because you remember God's people have all been captured. They're captives in Babylonia, right? They're in the worst place imaginable because they refuse to basically make the same statement that King Nebuchadnezzar is making, right? If Daniel and his people, if his own people would have responded to God the way King Nebuchadnezzar does in this moment, maybe they would have never been exiled to Babylon in the first place. And so it draws up out of us. There's this question of how will we respond to the work of God in the world. I want to go back a few verses. And uh, uh, Cam, you go and put these on the screen. Verse 20 through 23. When Daniel receives a revelation from God about the dream and its meaning, Daniel immediately burst out into song. He says this, Praise the name of God forever and ever. 
For he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by marvelous light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You've told me what we asked for and revealed to us what the king demanded. I love this scene. Daniel, under threat of death, prays to God and God answers. And Daniel sings in response to God working in his life. And Daniel answers another mystery. He reveals, hey, what's so special about Daniel? And the answer is nothing. Daniel doesn't have any power or, or authority. All of this was the work of the God of heaven. Daniel says, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. And when he says all, he means all. Like, I, I mean, maybe that's a silly word to pause and highlight on, but it's the truth. You know, you see, King Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was all-powerful. You know what they called him? They called King Nebuchadnezzar the king of kings. But God has all wisdom and power. In Matthew 28, Jesus himself says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I am all-powerful. And John, speaking of Jesus, John says, all things were created through him and nothing was created except through him. He gave life to everything that was created. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. I love what one commentator said about this. He said, he is Lord of history. Whether or not, at present, he seems to be acting as such. And that history that he's Lord of is going somewhere, even if that can only be perceived by divine revelation and not read from events themselves. Daniel says that God is personally in charge of all events. Daniel says that God is at work and his work is to bring about his kingdom rule. When I was reading in Ecclesiastes, this verse kept, kept coming to the surface. You got, okay, remember Ecclesiastes, everything is meaningless. I've tried everything, blah, blah, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, everything is temporary. But in the, in the in couple beginning chapters of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3, verse 11, the author of Ecclesiastes says that God has planted eternity in the human heart. It says, even, even so, people can't see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end, but still, God has planted eternity in the human heart. What do you think about that? You think that's true? Has God put 
a desire, a longing for something permanent, something that lasts, something of value. Do you think God has planted that in you? You know, I, I, I kind of think so. It's interesting to me that like, like we look for wisdom and, and we look for understanding in, in all of the things in our world, right? Like in everything in our world offers, like man, if you just had this, this is what you need. This is what you need to live the good life. And yet everything in this world is ultimately temporary. And so our hearts are craving for this thing that lasts and lasts and lasts and gives and gives and gives. And yet we search the world that is bankrupt, It made me think of a prayer that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter six. Maybe you know it. Instructing us how to pray, Jesus said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in that prayer, like what you should see like is when Daniel says a whole mountain is coming, the whole kingdom of God whose rule will never be challenged is coming. Jesus says, that's what I want you to be praying about. That's what I want you to fix all of your hopes and dreams on. Like, oh, I know you're, f- you're facing difficulty. I know in this temporary space things are hard, but there is something coming that lasts And Daniel says, man, we need to fix our eyes on it. And Jesus says, if you're going to seek anything in this world, if you fast forward a little bit in Daniel, seek first the kingdom of God and live righteously. You see, that that lasting kingdom is, is our work, first and foremost, I think. That lasting kingdom, that mountain, like, like that's something we work for, right? Um, when we do God's will, your kingdom come, your will be done. When we do God's will, when we do the things that God desires here, we initiate and bring that kingdom here. Uh, Maybe a little bit of it, right? When we invest in the kingdom of God, when we invest in things that matter, when we invest in things that are eternal, we usher in the kingdom. That's what it says, that's what he means when he says, seek first the kingdom of God. You have a role in bringing this about and and that kingdom comes first and foremost in you. Did you know that? It's born in you first. And so bringing about this kingdom becomes our work, but it also becomes the source of our hope. It is something in the midst of a, of a changing, confusing world. It's something that we can constantly return to and cling to and hold on to. Where can we find wisdom necessary to live in a world of growing complexity? How often have we fussed and fretted over the affairs of men? How often have your thoughts dwelled on things with expiration dates? Daniel reminds us to look ahead, to look towards heaven, to usher a little bit of heaven to earth, to seek first the kingdom of God.
So in just a moment, I'm going to say a prayer, and I'll dismiss you to a time of communion and response. Uh, instructions for, for this space will be on the screen. It's just a, a, a sacred space for us to consider what Jesus has done, to consider what he has to offer us, to consider what it means to be a part of the kingdom. As you take the elements of communion, man, I, I just encourage you to let go of things that are temporary. What is controlling your life right now that's temporary? What if you release those things and again, placed all your trust, all of your hope in the kingdom of God? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word, for its challenge, for its depth, for its richness. Father God, forgive us for all of the times that, man, we've, we've just lost sight of the eternal and we've settled for something, something temporary. Father, help us to remember that all power, all wisdom, all strength, all mercy, all hope, like all of these things belong to you and you alone. So as we lay down these temporary things, Father God, let us usher in your kingdom. Let us usher it in through obedience and through trust. Let us invite heaven here and let it start with each of us. We love you, Father, and in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says, Amen.